So the expectation gap, uh, this series is coming to a close today. It's week number four, and uh, hopefully you found it as helpful as I have. Uh, For those of you who haven't been with us, the expectation gap represents uh, the disconnect between our expectations in life and our actual experiences, the reality of life. And so many times we have expectations that are unmet, and we're left with this gap. This gap is filled with crushed dreams and hopes. It's filled with disappointments and frustrations. And many times we react to the gap in ways that are not healthy. Uh, This gap can be caused by people in our lives that we love, that we never expected to do certain things. This gap can be caused by things that we do that hurts and doesn't meet the expectations of others. And this gap can sometimes be in our mind and we allow things to become bigger than they really are. But today, what I want to do is end with uh, a more personal gap. And uh, today's message is going to be a little difficult for me to preach and it may be a little difficult for you to receive because we're going to be talking about our own actions and taking responsibility for our actions and understanding a simple fact that oftentimes we are guilty of not meeting God's expectations in life. And there's this thing that the Bible describes as sin that we all are subject to. And sin is actually an archery term. For those of you not familiar with that word, um, if there were a target and I were shooting a bow and arrow, if I missed the bullseye, if I were in a competition back in the day, a judge would yell, sin, you missed the mark. You weren't perfect. You didn't get it just right. And in life, God has given us instructions through his word. He's given us uh, a purpose in this life. And uh, sometimes more often than we'd like to admit, we miss the mark. And we deal with sin. And sin creates a separation between us and God. And we have to learn to deal with that gap in a healthy way, especially if we claim to be followers of Christ. See, I once had this mentality that once you get saved, you never deal with life anymore, right? So if you claim to follow Jesus, then your life's just perfect, and he makes sure that everything goes your way, and you always respond and react in healthy biblical ways. And then I discovered that um, after I accepted Christ as a young boy, that I still made mistakes, and I still fell short, and I still missed the mark, and I had to learn that there were a lot of scriptures that gave me instructions on how to live life and how to deal with that gap that's created when I miss the mark for God's best for me. And uh, so today we're just gonna, we're gonna deal with that. We're gonna jump into that head on and my heart in this is that it would be helpful to you, plain and simple, is that today would be really, really helpful to you. We're gonna be reading a scripture. Uh, we're gonna look at a story. We're gonna start in Joshua chapter number Six, that's in your Old Testament towards the front. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you have a smartphone, there's a, uh, an app called YouVersion, Y-O-U, where you can have the actual Bible with you for free on your phone, and we'll have the scriptures on the screen for you as well. But let me give you a little bit of context before we jump into this story. So the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, had been enslaved and in bondage to the Egyptians under Pharaoh's uh, control. And God went to a man named Moses, who was actually shepherding his father-in-law's sheep, and he met him out in the wilderness, and he gave him instructions that he's to go to the Pharaoh and command him to let my people go. If, you're a, if you have history with the church and you grew up in the church, you uh, remember the story, Pharaoh, let my people go. 
So Moses does that, and he goes, and lots of events happen, but he leads the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and God has promised that they will inhabit what's come to be known as a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land full of rich, vibrant life. It's the complete opposite of the bondage that they've endured for generations. And so Moses does that, but along the way they find themselves wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And because of some mistakes that Moses made, God didn't allow him to enter into the promised land. And Joshua, the book of Joshua, picks up on the death of Moses and God's call for Joshua to begin leading the people that Moses once led. Moses was an incredible leader and led millions of Israelites in a godly way. And now Joshua has stepped in to fill his shoes. And he sends spies uh, to spy out a land that they feel God has promised for them. And they head to a city called Jericho. And God gives them instructions on how they're going to take this city. If you'll remember the story in Joshua chapter 6, the instruction is for them to march around the perimeter of the city uh, for six times, and on the seventh day, they're to march around the perimeter of the city seven times, and God promised that the walls would come tumbling down, and they would inhabit the city, and it would be an incredible thing. So I want to pick up in Joshua chapter number six, starting in verse number 16. It says, the seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that are in it are to be devoted to the Lord. This is important. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her and her house shall be spared because she hid spies that we sent. But keep away from the devoted things. This is important, an important instruction for the children of Israel who are leaving slavery, having wandered in the wilderness, who are now finally inhabiting a land that God has promised them. Keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. The walls are going to fall. We're going to shout. We're going to go and inhabit this city. We don't take any plunder. It's not yours for the taking. It's devoted to the Lord. All the precious metals there to go into the treasury of the temple. This is not an opportunity for you to gain wealth at someone else's expense. These things are devoted to the Lord. Pretty clear instructions. And so they go and they inhabit the land. The walls fall and they destroy the entire city and they overcome the city. And I want to pick up in chapter number 7. Joshua chapter 7 verse 1 says... But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. They did everything they were supposed to do. They marched around the city. They blew the trumpets. They yelled. They inhabited the city when the walls fell. But there was a specific detail that they were getting given that they didn't follow. And they acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted, the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. I want to introduce you to a man named Achan today. A man like you and me who was living life in the midst of a wandering wilderness experience for 40 years, likely. Who, at the incredible favor of God, was 
part of the group of men who was able to inhabit a city that God had promised them for generations, that they were finally taking the land that God had given them. And like you and me, as part of that charge, he had distractions along the way. And though God had said, do not take any of the devoted things, do not take any plunder for yourselves, he was not above being tempted. And I can imagine Achan as they're destroying the city and they're burning the homes and they're uh, making sure that all of the devoted things are gathered and put into the proper place at the temple, that he begins to notice the value and the worth in these precious metals. And it catches his eye and he's overcome with a sense of longing for these things. Isn't that how sin starts in your life? Isn't that how sin starts in my life? I know it is for me. That we see something that seems so appealing, so attractive. We see something that captures our attention and it causes us to feel like it would add value to our lives even if we know on a surface level that it's not something that would add value to our lives. But his eye is caught and he finds himself taking something that he wasn't supposed to take and the Lord's anger burned, listen to this against Israel I find that interesting I thought it would say that the Lord's anger burned against Achan because Achan is the one here involved in the sin, he took the devoted things the rest of the nation didn't so I would think the Lord's anger burned against Achan but Joshua tells us that the Lord's anger burned against Israel. That there are consequences to our decisions that don't simply affect us is a heavy burden to carry. That our actions and our decisions don't simply affect our outcomes in life, but can actually affect a whole nation is a sobering thought. And it's a thought that we have to live life with, that as we make decisions and as we allow things to capture our attention and as we pursue things in this life, that there are always consequences to mistakes that we make. And it always affects more than just ourselves. So listen to what happens. Verse number two. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And when they returned Joshua to Joshua, they said, not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men and, and to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So they go to spy the next city that God's going to deliver into their hands. And they, these spies report back to Joshua. There's not a lot of men there. We just need to send two or 3,000. We'll take it. Not a problem, especially after what God just did for us in Jericho. So about 3,000 men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as uh, the as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. What seemed like a simple, easy victory was just the opposite. The same God that allowed a, a nation to march around walls and make walls crumble and was so on their side now has allowed a few men to kill 36 of them and run an entire army away from the land that they're 
to claim. Verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for our own great name? A man with such confidence that God had just acted on his behalf to take Jericho and seeing God do an incredible miracle is now experiencing the opposite end of the spectrum as what seemed like a simple victory became a devastating loss. And what seemed like God's blessings is now nowhere to be found. His hand is not with them. And they seem to be on their own, so much so that he even poses the question, why did we even leave slavery? Did we really come out here to be defeated by the Amorites and all the Canaanites and all the surrounding nations to hear about us and come and destroy us and wipe us off the face of the earth? Is that what's about to happen? And then God speaks to him, verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. Your nation that you lead has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. You, know, you want to know why just a few men are running your whole army away from the land that they feel they've been promised? It's because there's sin in the camp. And you have people who have taken devoted things that belong to the Lord, and I cannot bless the nation because of the sin that's dwelling in the camp. Verse 13, go, consecrate the people, tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, that which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. So the game plan is we've got to find the devoted things. We've got to discover the sin and we've got to get the sin out of the camp and then God can bless us. Again, verse 14, in the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. He who is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So you hear this plan and you realize... This is a pretty serious thing. I didn't count the cost of an action to take a few valuable possessions as plunder when I knew I wasn't supposed to. I've heard it said before that sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever want to pay. There is this disillusionment that sin brings into us that causes us to see sin as 
a minimal impact as not that big a deal. We can go back to the garden and, and see the serpent speaking to Eve and saying, did God really say that, that he would destroy you if you ate from this tree? He just doesn't want you to become like him. And so he makes these things in life that catch our attention seem as if they're not that big of a deal. But what's about to happen is exactly the opposite. Verse number 16, early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward tribe by tribes, and Judah was taken. The clans of Judah came forward, and he took the Zerahites. He had the clan of Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken. Joshua had his families come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to God, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done, and do not hide it from me. Isn't it crazy to think that of all the nation of Israel, God would reveal to Joshua, as the leader of the people, that there is sin in the camp, and knowing that there's sin in the camp, God would reveal to him which tribe the sin was in, which clan in that tribe the sin was in, which family in that clan the sin was in, and then which man in that family the sin was in. Of all of the millions in the nation of Israel, God narrowed down to one man, to Joshua, who it was that took the devoted things. Numbers 23, there's a, a promise that we don't really like, but it says something along the lines of, surely your sins will find you out. In Luke chapter 8, verse 17, the Bible promises us that what is concealed in the dark will be brought into the light. And we have this temptation that once we indulge in sin, if we can hide it and minimize the damage then there's still no impact. And it, again, is a myth. It's a lie. It's a destructive mindset to think that if no one knows about my sin, then my sin has no impact. And of the millions of people in the nation of Israel, God revealed to their leader exactly who took devoted things. And he asked Achan, what is this that you have done? Achan replied, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the plunder, when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside of my tent with the silver underneath. Here's the dangerous thing about sin. Sin presents itself as such a beautiful, enticing, alluring, satisfying object. Yet when we really embrace it, we feel as if we have to hide it to enjoy it. So a man who coveted something has taken something and hidden it and can't even enjoy what he's taken because he doesn't want people to know he took it. 
Now, how does that make sense when we logically think about it, that we would long for something in our hearts that we wouldn't even want people to know that we have? And we live under this belief that if we can keep certain things hidden, then there won't be any damage. But the truth is we can't even enjoy what we've embraced because we know that it's damaging. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Things are about to get really real for Achan. And he is about to understand the devastation of a single decision to take something that he knew he shouldn't have taken. When I hear this story, I'll be honest with you, there are times where it haunts me. Where I know that I live my life in such a way that I make mistakes, that I am not perfect, that I do miss the mark. And it's in those times where I understand the, gr the, the grave danger of embracing a life of sin and allowing sin to become a part of our lives. That sin can control us, that sin can manipulate us, that sin can cause us to enjoy life through wrong lenses so that we actually believe things that aren't even true. What's about to happen next is the most sobering thing, and I want you to hear verse number 24. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, listen to this, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, the place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. It's just a robe. It's just some silver. It's just a wedge of gold. It's so enticing, no one will ever know that I've taken it and kept it. And I'll even hide it and enjoy it in secret. And God saw fit to inform the leader of an entire nation that there was sin inside their camp. And never in a million years would Achan have imagined the impact of that single decision. That because of that single decision, the nation of Israel would suffer loss. Because of that single decision, in response, God's fierce anger burned against him. He was killed for what he did. Not only him, but his family, his sons and daughters, his cattle, everything that he owned was taken to a valley and burned and destroyed. That's how sin was gotten rid of from the camp. And that's the devastating price that sin has on your life and my life. You say, well, we don't do that anymore. We don't find people in sin and call them out and take them out. 
and stone them. We don't take them out and kill them. We don't take them out and murder them and punish them for the prices that they have. That seems like a a pretty big difference. And I want to explain to you the difference today. Because this is the good news for you and for me. The truth of the matter is, is that God's fierce anger burns against sin. God hates sin. And when we miss the mark, God's fierce anger has to be satisfied. His wrath against that sin has to be satisfied. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That would be me, and that would be you. That we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That we are all not above Achan. That we are all not above one single decision ruining our life. We are all not above a temptation, an alluring, enticing thought completely dominating our lives. I'm not above it. You're not above it. That's why we have to take this thing called sin so seriously. Because Romans 6.23 After Romans 3.23 says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. They took Achan out and stoned him. They killed him. That was what he deserved for his actions. And still today, the wages of sin demands death. Isn't that a sobering thought? That's God's word. If you went to a job and you worked a job and you were told what your wages would be and you weren't given your wages, you'd be pretty upset. And I just need you to know that when you sin, what you have earned is death. Man, that's a sobering thought. That we would not meet God's expectations and his best for our life and that those decisions demand death to satisfy God's wrath. Doesn't sound like the God we serve, right? We we don't ever do that. Why don't we do that? Let's back up to Romans 3.23, and I'm gonna show you why we don't do that. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ redeemed us for the sins that we committed, and we're justified freely through him. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. We've all sinned. That sin deserves death. And instead of us receiving the wages that we've earned, that are due us, that we deserve, God loved us enough to send his son Jesus to the earth And when he never sinned, he became sin for you and for me. That in place of our punishment, in place of our wages, he hung on a cross and was murdered to pay the penalty for your sins, past, present, and future. For my sins, past, present, and future. That there is now grace made available to us that no longer do we receive the penalty of death As wages for our sin, God took that upon himself. That's the beauty of the God that we serve. That's the incredible truth that we embrace. It doesn't mean that there aren't still consequences for our sins. 
It doesn't mean that we won't still reap what we sow in this earth. It simply means that God's wrath isn't satisfied by our death. It was satisfied by the death of his son, Jesus. So Romans 6, 23 again says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There has been this substitution that has taken place that when you and I fall short of God's glory, when we miss the mark, when we allow ourselves to be enticed and allured and attracted to things that, that aren't God's best for us, that no longer do we have to receive the payment for our sins, which is death, but Jesus received that for us. And all we have to do is place our faith in Christ and allow his payment to be sufficient for our sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we can now simply say, Jesus, I trust in you and I receive your sacrifice for me and I confess my sin to you and I receive forgiveness rather than what I'm actually deserved. That's hope for you. That's hope for me. But it still doesn't take away the fact that sin carries a heavy price for us, that sin causes us to live in such a way that doesn't bring honor to God, that we're not above sin, that God's grace isn't a blank ticket, it's not a blank check for us to go out and do anything that we want and live life any way that we want because it's covered by grace, it's covered by his blood, that we have an obligation as followers of Jesus to try to live our lives in such a way to bring glory of God. But the great news is when we fall short, his grace is there to meet us. I need to read a statement to you this morning that I've prepared in advance. I need to give you some news, news that breaks my heart and affects our church. But I wanted to share in the context of this reality that we're talking about this morning so that we as a church will respond in a biblical way. On Monday, June the 8th, I received an email informing me of an inappropriate relationship between two members of the volunteer staff leadership team here at Synergy. After immediately speaking with both parties involved, I confirmed that these accusations were in fact true. I have informed our remaining staff leadership team and board of overseers of this situation. Out of respect for the families involved, no further details will be given publicly, however, I want you to know that I am well aware of the situation and with the counsel of our board of overseers, staff, and other pastor friends, we are responding to these individuals in a biblical fashion. Both individuals recognize that their decisions have disqualified them from leadership and have willingly stepped down from their position and will no longer be serving in a leadership role, though I have assured them that they are always welcome at Synergy Church. 
My heart breaks for these families, and I have made myself available to walk with them through these difficult waters. Synergy Church is for people. We are all in process to becoming all that God wants us to be. We believe that God's grace is sufficient in our weaknesses. Please know that neither I nor our church will ever turn anyone away from our fellowship, especially when they need us most. With that in mind, I want to ask you as a church family to commit to two things. Number one, please pray for everyone involved. The individuals, their families, and our church, God can and will redeem all that the enemy means for harm. Restoration is the desired outcome, so let's trust that in all things, God will work for the good of those who love him. Number two, if you are made aware of any details regarding this situation, please give these families space to work through their next steps with privacy and decency. Please don't spread news or involve yourself in the process. Let's make sure that grace is at the heart of our church in any and every response. Lastly, I want you to know that Synergy Church is going to be fine. People respond to news like this in different ways. At the end of the day, God promised to build his church and that the gates of hell would not overcome it. I look forward to seeing us come together as we move ahead as a church in our mission to make Christ known in the lives of people far from God. I love you all and consider it an honor to serve as your pastor. First Peter 2.24 He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the cross. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Sin has a destructive wake that it leaves in its path. But by the grace of a God that loved us enough to send his son to pay the price for us, we have a way to close the gap that's caused by sin. And Jesus himself has borne the sin of the world I am not above a situation like this, and neither are you. And my hope and sincere desire as the pastor of Synergy Church is that as we move forward, we will be a church that's filled with grace toward people when they need it most. And I would love it if you would commit with me that if you're made aware of this situation or any details regarding it, that you would make sure that grace is flowing from your heart. My heart breaks for people, and I'm praying sincerely that God would restore what the enemy has meant for harm. I need it as your pastor for you to know that I was aware of the situation because hiding sin or something like this is never the wise decision. And lastly, I want to counsel you that if you have sin in your life, 
that if you've allowed the grip of sin to entice you, to lead you, to grab hold of you, please know that sin has a heavy price to pay. And there is forgiveness for you, but it's necessary for you to have a repentant heart. That simply means that you understand that what you've done is wrong and you turn from that and you run to Jesus and allow him to do for you what only he can do for you. I love my church. The best is still ahead for our church. And we will see God do incredible things in our church. I wouldn't want to pastor any other church in the whole world. We're not a perfect church. And to pretend like we were a perfect church would be unwise. I am not a perfect pastor. I am not a perfect man. We're all in process to becoming everything that God wants us to be. And if you'll commit with me to running hard after Jesus Christ and following him with all your heart, we're going to see God do some incredible, incredible things. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for me. And thank you for your sacrifice for all of mankind. That you would love us enough to bear the wrath of God against sin in your own body and give your life as a ransom for many is hard to imagine. But that's how much you love us. And I pray in this moment that you would lead us all close to the cross, that we might not live life in such a way to hide things or conceal things, but you would allow us to receive for freedom and forgiveness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of life has set us free and freed us from the bondage that sin has held us to. And we will walk in that freedom, Lord. And we will receive that freedom by faith. I ask for your favor on everyone involved in this situation. I ask for healing and restoration to be evident. And I ask for your blessing on our church as we move forward. In Jesus' name, I pray. Before we end our time together, I want to know if there's anyone in the room today that would say, I have never placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And if I were caught in my sins today, I would deserve death. And I realized that without accepting Jesus into my life and placing my faith in him, I can't receive the grace that's available to me. And if that's you today, I simply want to ask you to raise a hand in just a moment and say, that's me today. I want to place my faith in Jesus. I want to receive forgiveness for my sins. I want to allow the grace of God to flood my life that I might be freed from the hold that sin has on me and I might live my life in such a way that the price that Jesus paid on the cross would be sufficient 
for all of my needs. If that's you and you're here today, would you just lift a hand and say, that's me, I need to place my faith in Jesus. That's awesome. It's awesome. Anybody else? Here's what I ask. If your hand's up, would you just look at me? I want to lead you in a prayer. Nothing magical about the prayer. It's just a way of connecting the dots. As I pray this prayer, if you'll just, in your heart of hearts, if you'll just repeat it, I believe today the reality of Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be freed from the hold of sin on your life and you can receive that grace that God's made available. So if that's you, would you just pray this prayer in your heart? Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. I'm sorry for all my sin and shortcomings. I pray that you would forgive me. I accept you as my Savior. And I commit to live my life for you for the rest of my days. I accept your grace in place of my wages of death. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. And can we as a church, can we just celebrate that God has just done some incredible things?